to the 17th episode of Outsiders. My name is Julia Curtis Burns and I'm your host. And today I'm joined by... I'm Robin J. Hayes, Assistant Professor at the New School and Director of Black in Cuba. Awesome. So, Black in Cuba, I saw it. Well, I, saw, well, I found out that I saw the rough cut. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I saw it and loved it. Could you tell us a little bit about the film? Sure. And it's, what inspired it? Yeah, so it's a, a feature-length documentary that follows a diverse group of Ivy League students who are outcasts of their elite school, band together, and adventure to Cuba. Uh, and uh, Cuba, um, a lot of people in the United States don't know, Cuba is 60% black. Um, so as they travel through Havana and Santiago, they meet with Cubans from different walks of life and begin to understand how race and racism works in both countries, the United States and Cuba. Mm. And what inspired that film? Why did you... Well, I was actually one of the students, and um, we uh, talked about filming our experiences on the trip uh, as a way of democratizing knowledge. So... We realized, you know, we were students at Yale University and, you know, uh, we found that the information that we had access to in our PhD programs uh, was information that was not really made accessible to people from our communities. I mean, we came from neighborhoods like the South Bronx and bed I'm from East Flatbush, Brooklyn. Brooklyn! Brooklyn. Before it was fashionable. <laughs> Um, the old Brooklyn. And, um, and so we found that, you know, the, the things that we were learning about were really relevant to our communities, but weren't necessarily accessible to those communities. Mm. And so film was a way possibly to bridge that divide. So that's what really inspired the project. Mm, love that. Love that. Mm -hmm. So in speaking about that, have you shown the film in Brooklyn, in your community? Yes, we've had a really warm reception while well, we were on the film festival circuit and we premiered at the Pan-African Film Festival in Los Angeles, which is one of the top 10 film festivals in the country and um, also one of the premier film festivals featuring uh, work about the African diaspora. And we had a sold-out show there, and they were very enthusiastic. And since then, we have been uh, at uh, the Museum of Contemporary African Diaspora in Brooklyn, at the Schomburg Center for Research in uh, Harlem, and the uh, African American Museum in Philadelphia, where we're going to have a return engagement, I believe March 13th, we'll be back there. Um, so we've also, interestingly, shown the film at Google, the Googleplex in Mountain View, oh. at The Nation. Um, so we have had a lot of interest from different stakeholders, people who are interested in talking about learning more about Cuba and understanding how we can have more normalized relations mm. between the U.S. and Cuba. Okay. And I mean, now as it's becoming easier to get to Cuba, yes. um, mm -hmm. have you found a more, even more interest in the film? Or Yes. Well, I think that people are interested um, because there's a lot of pent up curiosity about Cuba, right? So now that it's... Um, uh, less stigmatized. Mm -hmm. um, I think people feel more comfortable coming to a film called Black in Cuba and really talking frankly about, you know, what Cuba has to do with them and their experiences. Mm -hmm. and people in Cuba think about the United States every day because they have to because of the embargo. Um, but we uh, may be interested in Cuba, but we don't necessarily have the resources to learn about it. So mm -hmm. there's definitely been um, a great deal of interest and because President Obama has really advanced these changes very quickly in the past year. 
Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And what is your dream for the film? Like, where do you where do you hope that it goes? Well, honestly, the dream is coming true right now mm-hmm. because um, we are able to have these community screenings at organizations that people really turn to for information about the African diaspora and about racial equality. So mm-hmm. all of our screenings have been very diverse, people from all different walks of life. Um, and it's really created an environment for cross-cultural dialogue, not just about Cuba, but about race in the United States and how mm. we can move forward. And so that's what I really hope for the for the film, that it would uh, provide people with the information they needed to move forward in their work advancing equality. So um, that's really exciting. And then we're going to be uh, on iTunes and Google Play and Amazon uh, throughout the Americas in Spanish and Portuguese as well as English. So I'm really excited for people in the Caribbean and Central America and South America to be able to see... Um, not just to learn more about Cuba, but also to learn more about African Americans and the African American experience and how we relate to Latin America. Because mm. I think um, something we talk about in the film is that the image of the African American in the world is very distorted. It's either you know um, uh, this uh, very racist stereotype about violence and uh, poverty um, that is very dehumanizing and doesn't really show the you know, how do we wind up living in ghettos in the United States? What are the segregationist practices mm. that have created that? So it's that, or it's Oprah and President Obama and everything's great, you know, and we have billions of dollars and we're living in Bel Air like the Fresh Prince. And so there's not really an in-between space to talk about <laughs> how most black people like are Like an everyday living. person. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so this film really kind of gives you more of that, um, okay, you're not a rap star. What is America like for you? And um, I think that's a conversation that we need to have internationally mm. to understand each other better. Mm-hmm. And I mean, with everything that's happened recently with Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. you know, these discussions are so important. And yes. one thing, I, I used to be a teacher. I was a mm-hmm. teacher for four years um, and I worked with youth and there was a lot of anger and misunderstanding about mm-hmm. race and, and just having conversations about that is so important not only for you know college students mm-hmm. or adults but also younger people like middle schoolers mm-hmm. do you do any um film screenings with that age group well we are actually we've had um a number of school teachers who have come to our uh, to our events and they're very excited to bring the mm-hmm. film to their students and at latincuba.org we actually have a high school teacher's guide with uh, sample exercises and questions and, com- and uh, conversation guides that s- teachers can use. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's focused somewhat on the Common Core, which we need to revise, but it's still something that is um, very helpful for young people. And the teachers that the feedback we've received from teachers who have seen the film is that it's definitely something that students can connect with, and it presents information in a very accessible and relatable, relatable mm-hmm. way. Um, so yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so aside from this amazing film, you're also doing a lot of other cool stuff. So can yes. you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing here at the New School, oh, sure. what your research is about? Well, I'm a professor at the New School, and the New School is an exciting place to be a professor because it's um, really all about theory and practice. So mm. the New School is a great place for scholars and artists and professional practitioners who are trying to solve problems in the world. Um, and so it's a fun place to be. And uh, at the new school, I'm 
in the management program, and I'm also in international affairs and media studies and urban policy. But the projects I'm working on right now include a book called A Love for Liberation, mm. which is about the relationship between black power and African independence. Uh, so it really mm. takes, I mean, my specialization is really about transnational connections between social movements and so black social movements. And so this really follows um, these different movements as they sort of come together uh, in frustration and um, learn about how racial discrimination is a human rights issue. Mm-hmm. Um, international human rights issue. So there's that book, which should be hopefully coming out in 2017. That's the goal. And I'm also working on a documentary uh, that is executive produced by Essie Paper Murkerson. Mm-hmm. Most people remember her as the black lady lieutenant on Law and Order. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> I saw her on the train. Oh, yeah. I was, I, you know, but she was trying to. She's very cool. She doesn't, yes. you know, I didn't want to, she looked like she was in her zone. So I didn't want to interrupt <laughs> and say like, hi. So I just kind of yeah. like gave her the nod, you know, yes. the low key yes. like well, sister nod. Yeah, so it's funny because she's, and she's uh, on, um, she plays a hospital administrator on the show, Chicago Med right now. Um, but she's most known for Law and Order. But a lot of us don't know that she's a very, very accomplished theater actress mm. and uh and filmmaker as well. So she has done a lot of work for many years. Her first movie part was in She's Gotta Have It, actually. So, yeah. So, um, but she, so we're working together on a documentary called, uh, it's it's actually a transmedia project that's a documentary, a play, and a website called Nine Grams. And it follows Mm. a Hollywood screenwriter who was placed in solitary, was racially profiled as a drug trafficker, and placed in solitary confinement for three months in Turkey because she was a gender nonconforming woman. Mm. So, um, and she uh, decides to write a play about her experiences that's directed by Miss Murkerson. And she learns about, uh, you know, the difficulty uh, that women have in readjusting to life after prison and the stigma that uh, really uh, prisoners are forced to bear. Mm. And so that has been really interesting because I've gotten to uh, do interviews with uh, ex-prisoners, women ex-prisoners. And um, it's really astonishing to me how so many prisoners have so much shame um, around being incarcerated. And, you know, we make all kinds of jokes about what prison is like. And um, sometimes we exoticize it. Mm. And I think, you know, even those of us who are sympathetic and know about mass incarceration and know that there is a school to prison pipeline and there is racial profiling. We still sort of look down on people who have been in prison as if it's the result of some personal failing. When mm. really, you know, people are being channeled into these institutions. Um, and plenty of us have done wrong things and broken laws and have never spent a day in jail. Um, and so, you know, we need to work as a society, I think, in breaking that association between, you know, thinking about prison is something that happens to you because you've done something wrong when, you know, for some communities it's very difficult to escape prison mm-hmm. um, no matter what you do. So, um, yeah. And your family is affected by it. Yes. And and someone that, in your family yes, that you and may I, know. And I you think, know. Yeah, and I think that for, I mean, something we talk about in the film is, you know, how do you, how do black families, because it's disproportionately affecting black people, how do black families heal from the trauma of incarceration? Mm. It's not something that just happens to the prisoner, something that happens to the whole family and therefore the whole neighborhood, the whole community. And so how can we have a family reunion, you know, that really 
encourage, but the first step to that is rejecting the stigma and the shame and being open about talking about it. Because mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, it's something that family members have a hard time discussing. And I think it's something that prisoners have a hard time discussing is what I found in this yeah. work so far. So, um, so I'm really excited about that. And so it will be a documentary and a play and the website will have um, these interactive elements that allow people to talk about um, their experiences in prison and also their experiences loving a prisoner, um, which I think is also equally important um, mm-hmm. because prison is a place where people stop being people um, and become something else, but not to the people that love them. And I think that's really mm. important to make visible. That's really important to make visible. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, so are you following couples at all in the or that is something we haven't we haven't touched on okay. quite yet because we're really our the protagonist of our documentary and the play was I mean she actually she had a relationship going into prison and prison sort of put so much pressure on it that it didn't survive. Yeah. So seeing how people survive, um, how relationships are able to survive is something hopefully we will be able to get to and people we've talked to. I think that's important too. That's really important too. Mm-hmm. And then because I'm a queer woman of color, mm-hmm. I'm always interested in that aspect also mm-hmm. how um, different communities, gender nonconforming mm-hmm. communities, you know, queer mm-hmm. communities are treated in the prison system mm-hmm. and how that affects you. So, yeah. And there's plenty of evidence that, um, uh, Queer people, especially gender non-conforming and trans people, um, face disproportionate amount of violence, of institutional negligence. Um, so it, prison is bad, and for uh, queer people, it's much worse. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. So what is a typical day like? You're a professor, <laughs> but you're also... I mean, she has this amazing office with all of these awesome art pieces a photograph of michael jackson <laughs> diana ross that is diana ross yes <laughs> i was like no because she looks really young so i'm like Ooh. yes, yes. Um, that was from some that was from like mahogany period mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite films of all time oh um yes mahogany yes i've probably seen it like a hundred times but yeah so i try to have things I mean, I probably, I'm just looking actually at one of our vision boards. I'm laughing because one of our interns, whom I love, was so sweet because I was like, we need to reorganize this vision board. And she was like, oh my goodness, this is just like Pinterest. And I'm like, no. (laughs) I mean, I see what she's saying. No, I'm like, no, but this is what Pinterest is based on. It's the opposite. (laughs) We used to actually have actual pictures and pin them in an actual space. So, yeah, so over the years, I guess, being an activist and an artist and um, and a professor, you know, I see things that I find inspiring and I just try to have them up in the office. Mm. And, um, and I also have it for students because, you know, I have office hours and interns. And I think, you know, there's so much about black history and culture. I feel really fortunate to have been able to learn. I'm still learning every day doing this work. And I try to just have an environment that really exposes people to as much as possible, you know. So you never know what might spark somebody's mm-hmm. imagination or whatever. So, yeah, but so a typical day for me, um, it's funny because I have a lot of friends who work in office, nine to five office jobs. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're always having a back and forth because to them, they think my life is so glamorous and luxurious 
um, because I don't have to be like somewhere at a time unless I'm teaching a class or I have a meeting. And I envy them because they're only judged on the amount of hours they put in, not what they've actually made. So, mm-hmm. so, <laughs> so I'm like, yes, I don't have to be at the office necessarily at 10, but when you leave at 6, you are free. You're free. Right. Um, you owe nothing more. You put in your hours. So, um, so for me, it's, uh, I try to have a routine where I get up and meditate. I write for two hours Mm. and then I exercise. And then there's the rest of the day, which is everything else I need to do, Mm -hmm. everything on my to-do list. Um, and so I try to stick to that as much as possible because structure is really important when you are evaluated by what you put out because, you know, you can feel like, Oh, you know. I just have these huge blocks of empty time, but if you don't have a plan for that time, it just goes by so quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's already March. How did that happen? How did that happen? And it's a leap year, and it's still, it's like, what is that leap day? Nothing. It's not helping at all. (laughs) I was counting on that leap day. (laughs) That leap day! (laughs) That leap day was going to do everything I needed for February, and it didn't. But March goes on forever, so it's all good. Yeah, March goes on forever, and hopefully it will be warm. Yeah, I don't know. So, so yeah. So, for me, yeah. So, in, in a lot of ways, the days. After about 12, my day tends not to be typical because it just depends on mm-hmm. what needs to get done that day. But that's generally how my mornings are, at least. Yeah. So you have structured mornings and yes. you make sure that every morning you meditate. I try to meditate every day, even if it's just for a few minutes. Um, because I think when you do a lot of different things, it's easy to forget your intention. Mm. Um Mm-hmm. And it's easy, and, it's, and not even, it's not even doing a lot of, well, I mean, there's that, but I think it's doing a lot of different things, and social media, <laughs> and, social media. Like, and social media, and living in a achievement-based culture, and not a success-based culture. Mm. So something, I, I teach a leadership class, and I, I talk to my students a lot about really being clear about the difference between achievement and success. Achievement is, you know, what you can post on the gram or Facebook to be like, I did it, you know, mm. greatest life ever. And <laughs> hashtag greatest life ever. <laughs> hashtag greatest life ever. <laughs> hashtag better than you. <laughs> hashtag blessed. Right? So, <laughs> slay. All oh, slay. Hashtag slay. Exactly. So all of that is fun and great. But if you're living for achievement, you're probably doing uh you're reaching for the low-hanging fruit and things and you're not really having your eyes on the prize in terms of what is your intention why are you doing this and so i think meditation is really helpful to just get you back to like what is, what is it i'm trying to get out of this life what is it i'm trying to put into this life you know so that's helpful to me have you always meditated like or is this a new um, um i've been meditating probably for 15 years oh wow yeah but i go it's- through periods where i'm more disciplined than others so yeah um i'm really interested in meditation so mm-hmm. is it um do you listen to someone uh, guide like a guided I, meditation I, or are you just i um do your thing i just do my thing i um well, i don't just do my thing i do i guess what's called a meta meditation which is about you know may i be filled with loving kindness may someone you know you think of someone you love may they be filled with loving kindness mm. someone that you're ambivalent towards someone that you're struggling with and then, you know, all sentient beings, you know, and everyone equally. And so uh, that, and then you can say that over and over again, go through that sequence as many times as you like. And I think it just helps uh, just center me in terms of what 
is really important, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like you can, this work is hard and it can be challenging and, you know, you have conflicts and you have uncertainty. Um, and so if you can kind of start the day, for me, if I can start the day with that, it's sort of like, you know, let's just, let's just remember we're not talking about life and death, you know, mm-hmm. like this is just everything else is, you know, you can figure it out. You can figure it yeah, out. Yeah, you can do So what brought you into academia? What inspired you? What brought me into it? Well, it's funny because when I left college, I thought I was going to work for nonprofits for a couple of years and be a lawyer. Mm. And then, um, and then I realized that I thought, you know, then I went off and I sort of was an, an or community organizer for a while and I did grassroots organizing and I was really interested in that. And then I thought, you know, I, I wanted to, uh, figure out what would be like a more long-term commitment I could make to the work. Yeah. And, um, and I always was good at school. I always, you know, had an aptitude for reading and writing. And I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to think about, uh, social movements and race and, you know, really think about how, how can we solve these problems? And mm-hmm. so that's, uh, how I kind of came to this. I don't want to go to graduate school. Mm-hmm. And what was the process like for you? So do you you're you have your PhD? Yes, I wish. How long did it take? Forever. No, <laughs> Scary. The, <laughs> not forever. Yeah, a like, large, honestly, it's over. So a not large forever. chunk. Well, no, it's okay. funny because it's so funny because I don't. It was a, again. It was a running joke that we had in graduate school. You know, because you know, we when I was in graduate school, a lot of us lived on this one street by the campus. And it was like the graduate school neighborhood. And the people in the two-year programs just came and went. Came and went. <laughs> oh, they kept flowing through. <laughs> so we were just like, <laughs> it's just how, you know, it's like, to us, it seemed like, I'm sure to them it wasn't so quick, but to us, it just seemed like, you know, it's nothing. But on average, I mean, the reality with the PhD program is the average, I think the average is 10 years. Um, mm. The average is actually not finishing at all. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. but for among people who do finish, the average is ten years. It makes a big difference if you're at a program like where I was, where they fund you the entire time, so you don't have to work full time. You don't have to. You can focus exclusively on that. Oh wow! And so I think because of that, I was able to finish in seven years. Yeah. So that's and, awesome. Yeah, and it was. I mean, certainly was a sacrifice. I mean, I was, you know, in my twenties. Um, my friends who were not in graduate school were very glamorous and having fun and like <laughs> living in cities and dating and being mm. free and footloose and fancy free and I was like phenomenon, you know. Um so <laughs> it's like Marx. <laughs> and I was very like, mm, but what about capital? You know, so that was a sacrifice. Um but I definitely wouldn't trade that time. I definitely mm. learned a lot about myself and the world and it was very uh uh influential so in terms of what it was like I think you know graduate school is completely different than college it's an apprentice program Mm. you're studying to be you're an apprentice to professors you're training to be a professor you may not choose that route once you get out um, which is up to you Um, many people don't but um, that is still how it's very much structured and so um I think it's not just more school. I think the people who struggle the most are people who thought, 
it would just be an extension of college. College is really about, you know, you and your feelings and your perspectives and nurturing you as a person. Graduate school is about testing whether you're up to the challenges of this profession. Mm. So it's not, it can, you can find support and mentorship, but it's not necessarily a nurturing environment. Um, so I think that's important for people to understand. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're not tough enough to do it or that you shouldn't do it, but I think you should be clear about what, how it usually is, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, um, not fun. (laughs) College is fun. Graduate school is not fun. (laughs) Graduate school is about the work. It's about the work and it's about what you figuring out what your contribution is going to be. Mm. What are you going to add to, in my case, African-American studies or political science or, you know, history, whatever it is. What is it that you want to talk about and think about for 10 or 20 years or 40 years? Mm-hmm. Um, and what are you going to be contributing that is helpful? Mm-hmm. How did you, because um, I'm really curious about this, mm-hmm. from graduating from undergrad, mm-hmm. Did you go directly to grad no, school? I and wandered then... around the wilderness. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for, I wandered around the radical wilderness for five years <laughs> because I was really trying to figure out, you know, what... I mean, I graduated from college very early, so I think I just had some kind of growing up to do and maturing like outside of the school environment. And then also I was just really thinking about what is it that I want to contribute? You know, mm. How is it that... I could be helpful and also fulfilled and interested, you know, so Mm. it took me some time. And then you had to apply for the fellowship or it was just part of my school. Yeah. It was part of my acceptance. I mean, I was so ignorant. I didn't even know, you know, to think about these sort of things. I just sent in the application, but, um, yeah. So if for schools that are offering full sets of funding, you can, um, they generally will just, you know, send you a funding package as well as, Mm-hmm. Um, as well as the acceptance. Oh, that's awesome. But that's something, I mean, people should not be, I definitely say I applied to graduate school absolutely the wrong way, and I don't, somehow it worked out for me, but don't be afraid to shop around and mm-hmm. really think about, you know, what, what feels like a good fit for you and give yourself a number of options. You know, don't get your heart set on, I mean, it always cracks me up when people are like, I want to go to X or I don't want to go. It's like, well, then you probably just don't want to go, <laughs> you know, like, um, don't get your heart set on just one thing because there's a million things that can impact whether or not you're accepted that don't have anything to do with you. I mean, at Yale, back when I still had paper applications because that's how old I am, um, <laughs> they, they every year, you know, there would just be crates in the office, in the African-American Studies office, crates of applications. And, you know, we would always say, you know, probably... 99% of these applications are people who could make good use of this degree. Mm. You know, it's not really like the difference between the 10 people who get in and the everybody else is so great. Mm. You know, it's just other factors, you know. So I think it's just important to give yourself as many opportunities to fit in somewhere as mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. And then once you fit in, you're able to do the work no matter yes. what. Yes. Right. Yeah. If you're, yes. Well, not, no, well, yes. You, well, not no matter what. I mean, you have, to, it's important to have a support system. Mm. Um, so that's something else I think it's important for people to look at in the PhD program is, you know, who is for you succeeding? You know, what professors, what's the feeling among students? You know, and that's something you can get a sense from visiting or just talking with people who've been in the program people who have gotten out of the program, mm. you know, 
um, is there uh, a community that you can envision for yourself in? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really important because you're. I mean, you're going to be in the program for a while. A while. <laughs> yeah. So it's like plan to be there for a while. <laughs> do I like my neighbors in this yes. building? Because yeah. I'm going to be here. Yes, for... exactly. Are these people I feel like I want to have mm-hmm. class discussions with? Are these exactly. people I want to study for my oral exams with? Are these you know, these faculty members who are going to be on the lookout and, you know, and write me helpful letters or, mm. you know, do they, are they interested in what I'm interested in? I mean, these are important things to think about. Yeah, before you, yeah. because I mean, I think sometimes what you were saying earlier, people say, I want to go to this school or else I don't want to go, you know? Yes. It, mm-hmm. It's also about the, the right fit for you and yeah. you interviewing that school and making sure that that's going to be a place that's really going to help you to grow yes. in the way that you need to grow. I think that's absolutely true. And I think, I mean, we're not sometimes, well, now I think, you know, students on their own, it seems to me, have a little bit more of that mentality where they're trying to find, you know, they're trying to make a good choice and they want mm. all the information possible, which is, I, th- I think is great um, and helpful for everybody. Um but yeah, I think it's just really important to think about, you know, what are you, to do that time and think about what is it you're really looking for, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I work with students who have gone straight through, you know, from uh, college to a PhD program and that's worked for them. I've worked with people who've taken three years to decide, you know, and that's worked for them, you know, mm-hmm. so it, there's no like one model that works. Yeah. Just think about, you know, when you do sign up. Try to be as ready as you can be. Mm-hmm. And were you able to find really great mentors in your program? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think being in African-American studies, in African-American studies, you know, some people will not like it that I say this, but I think it still is an activist discipline mm-hmm. in the sense that there uh, is, you know, there's probably only maybe 300 people in the world with a PhD in African-American studies ever. Wow. Um They've only been giving out African American studies PhDs for thirty years in this country. So um, to be anywhere where there's an African American studies or ethnic studies program, those faculty are committed to promoting knowledge about race and racial inequality mm. and the history and culture of the African diaspora. And I think that that creates a sense of like you know we're all in it together, mm-hmm. you know. And so they want my experience was in my program that, you know, we're a team and we want everyone on the team to succeed um, because we think this work is important and we know that this work is often undervalued. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, I don't know if other disciplines have necessarily that same camaraderie because they don't have that same sort of historical position in the academy, but um, that was my experience. Mm-hmm. Do you still keep in touch with your mentors from yeah. the program now? Yeah, I still do. I mean, it's it's funny because um, you know, with the I find that with the advisor relationship, like they are frozen in time to you, but you know, for them, you're like a million students ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, you know, they're like, Remind they're like way back when, like, <laughs> wait. So it's not like they don't remember me or anything like that. It's not all. They're super warm and super nice. But 
I think, you know, your when you think about your advisors, they're, you know, you're still like a graduate student. They're like, you're old. You've got a job. Like, yeah, go you're live good. your life. Exactly. <laughs> like, I've got to deal with this one right here, which is game. Um, so, yeah. So there's a little bit of that, which is always funny. But, yeah, we all keep it in touch. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so what has been most rewarding for you and what has been most challenging for you on this journey? Um, I think what's most rewarding is just being able to provide people with information that Mm -hmm. they find really helpful. I mean, that is always the thing that makes me so excited. And whether it's in my classes or working with interns or, um, you know, doing screenings and, and, and trainings, you know, people are so hungry for information about people of color, about mm-hmm. race and equality, about social justice. And so it's it's always exciting to me to be able to offer that to people who are looking for that because it's so important and I think empowering mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways. So that is super rewarding to me. And I think the challenges are um, just being someone who does a lot of different things, you know, makes you very unique in any profession Mm. Um, I mean I think there's you know people have their ideas about what one should do (laughs) (laughs) often based on what they do (laughs) and um and it's difficult to be you know constantly sort of articulating yourself and constantly saying like this is why this matters and this is why because people are and I don't know if it's just me because I grew up in a in a really, I grew up in a lot of diverse environments. I grew up in a lot of environments where I was usually the only black person or one of the few black people. So I'm used to tolerating difference um, and tolerating people doing like things that like, okay, that's what you're doing. Um, but I find that sometimes it's difficult to be, you know, that person who's, you know, charting a course that is not harmful to anyone is actually helpful but because it's different people kind of don't know what to do with it Mm -hmm. it's not even always hostile it's just sort of like you know it's like why are you doing this why yeah exactly like i don't (laughs) what you know and it's like don't just relax (laughs) yeah so (laughs) how how do you how do you motivate yourself if that's something that well i think it's you know I don't know. It's funny. One of my friends uh, went to Clark Atlanta University. HBCUs. Hey, HBCU, shout out. <laughs> and so, um, and she always says, you know, the, the, one of the things they always uh, drilled into the students was getting where you fit in. Mm. You know, like don't, uh, don't be so caught up in the no's. Just focus on the yeses. And mm-hmm. I think that that, is super helpful because you know you uh if you're doing something that's helpful and constructive i find if you're doing something that's helpful and constructive there is a place for you it may not be clear to you where that is right now (laughs) it's not always like mad apparent like this is the place for me sometimes it takes some struggle to figure it out but it exists because Mm -hmm. we need all hands on deck you know so Mm-hmm. I think that is part of what keeps me going is just like having that confidence that's like, you know what, something's gonna, something's gonna do something because, you know, I'm just coming from a positive and constructive place. Mm-hmm. I think that you are an innovative woman and that's <laughs> why I wanted to interview you for this podcast. Mm-hmm. What does being innovative mean to you? Um, 
to me, being innovative is about being solutions oriented. Mm. You know, everything that I've done professionally has really been about trying to solve problems I thought should be solved. So, you know, becoming a filmmaker wasn't like, oh, I really want to make movies for movie's sake. It was really about, you know, what can be done to bridge the gap between, you know, the knowledge that we're building in the academy and the knowledge that people want on the outside. So I think, you know, when you're trying to solve problems, you know, chances are you need to come up with new approaches and new ideas. Mm -hmm. And so that's what really, to me, is the motivator of innovation. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. So I'm doing this thing. It's called Shiro Shoutout, right? Where I give, especially because... This is almost, oh my God, it's almost March. Yes. History Month. It is still February. Black History Month. Black History Month. Do you have a Shiro that you'd like to give a shout out to? A Shiro shout out. Um, It was the first to come to mind. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about Ava DuVernay. Mm. And I know that a lot of people, you know, when you do the Shiro shout out, people are like, somebody who's no longer with us or somebody who's from forever ago, which I have plenty of those, but I haven't thinking a lot about her because so many people when I'm showing my film or I'm talking about being a filmmaker reference her to me as another black woman filmmaker and she is young Mm. right she is very much alive very much still building a career that has of course been very successful but I think to me it's astonishing how someone I mean I think middle of nowhere might have come out five years ago Mm -hmm. you know six years ago how someone can shift a conversation so quickly um, where, you know, we had not seen uh, too many black women filmmakers. Of course, there was Julie Dash and uh, Gina Prince-Blythewood. And um, so there, she's obviously not the first. I don't think she would say she was the first, but that she has shifted the conversation um, about uh black women filmmakers and that that is something that a black woman can be and should be and that and shifted the conversation about self-distribution instead of something that is a last resort should really be a first resort for independence especially for people who are underrepresented in the film industry or making movies about people who are underrepresented in a film so uh to me i would give her a shout out for uh really giving people, I guess, a way to understand what I do, mm. um, which then I think empowers people to support me and other people like me. And I think that that's really helpful. Love that. Love that. Yeah. Shout out. Shout out to mm-hmm. Now, if you were not a professor, what would your alter ego career be? <laughs> I, have to ask I mean, I have so many careers now. That it's like, <laughs> what else is left? <laughs> Like, is there a career that you, like, fantasize? I already have three like, <laughs> I can't think of any. I mean, it's funny to me because I always advise people, you know, I always, when people tell me they don't know what they want to do with, and especially students, when they say, I don't know what I want to do with my life, oh. you know, what, what, what is my career? Students come to you and say that? Oh, my God. Oh, of course, sure. That's a lot of pressure. My friends come to me and That's say that. a lot that. of pressure, man. Well, no, but I mean, people say, you know, what What do I, you know, I think, uh, you know, we feel like we've been in school, mm-hmm. and then we're supposed to have a big life plan, you know, but we don't realize, you know, K through 12 or K through 
16 if you go to college or even a little bit beyond that if you go to graduate school. I mean, that's really just such a small fraction of your life yeah. if you're fortunate. You're fortunate to make it to old age. So, um, yeah, but so when people say to me, though, like they're not sure what they want to do, I always tell them, ask them, what would you do, do if you won Powerball tomorrow? Mm. Right? If you were free Love from... That. Free, <laughs> you were free from concerns about money, how would you live? What would you do with your time? And people always have an answer. Maybe it's because here in New York City, Powerball chases us around, <laughs> right? You always know what Powerball is. The number it's is like in every bodega. In every bodega. It's, on the, it's on the subway state. Like, you can't get away from Powerball. But every, everyone has had the chance to think about, okay, you know, my life has changed. I've won $150 million. What would you do? And that is the answer. That is what you should do with yourself because that's what you really want. Mm. Right? Um, and I find that it's almost never, like, nothing. Mm. Like, it's very rare that someone says to me, oh, I would just, you know, kick it and smoke up all day. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. yeah, most people have <laughs> some kind of idea of a vocation mm. or something that they would really want to do with their time. So I think, you know, that's, for me... I don't think my life would change in terms of my work very much if I won Powerball. And I feel very lucky about that. And I would not, you know, I don't, there's not something else out there I feel like, you know, I really wish I were doing. Mm -hmm. So I feel very fortunate. So you're living your Powerball. I'm living my Powerball life on a much lower budget. <laughs> on a lower budget, on a lower but you're budget, living Powerball yes, life. But I am living, I'm living a Powerball life. Yes, I like that. And I, feel, and I feel very happy about that. That's great. Yeah. Are there any quotes that you live by? Well, something um, I think about a lot because it's in uh, the film is uh, at Howard University when they had the Howard University chapter, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was you know, the group that went and did all the sit-ins and they did the voter registration. Soakley Mark Carmichael was a part of that group and it was called the Nonviolent Action Group. And their motto was, a free black mind is a concealed weapon. Mm. And that's something that I, I do think about a lot. And it's something that my grandparents drilled into me too because they were always so super, like a lot of black people, super pro-education. And, um, and they were so pro-education because they had grown up in the Jim Crow South. And they had grown up in a society where, you know, as black people, their body was very much up for what people felt like, um, regardless of what the laws were, regardless of what human decency and social justice required. And so for them, the mind was the only true autonomous space, right? Because, like, people can do what they want to to your body, but your mind is free from that if you decide for it to be. You know, you can seize your mind um, in a way that you can't necessarily seize property or seize job opportunities. Or... And so that, um, that quote to me really embodied their feelings about education. And, and I think that it's really important because... So much is getting into our minds nowadays. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it's hard to right. kind of keep your mind clear and be like, no, this is how I feel and this is what I want and this is what's true for me. So yeah. I do I do think about that. A free a free black mind is a source of strength and it shouldn't be undervalued. Mm -hmm. 
So are there any terms that you identify with or that you claim that... As in terms of, like, I'm Robin Hayes, I'm a... I'm a lesbian. Mm, I'm, so you, you like lesbian as you... As... I mean, that's what I call myself. Okay. You... Yes. I mean, I say queer sometimes um, out of solidarity. Mm-hmm. Because um, uh, I think of it as... I think of it as being more of an umbrella term. I know everybody doesn't feel that way. Um, but um, uh, I also say that I'm African-American and I also say that I'm black. I say that I'm African-American when I feel like I want to clarify for people that my uh, grandmother's grandmother was a slave okay. um, and in the United States. Um, and that's what African-American means to me, to be the descendant of Africans who came, were brought to the U.S. Um, and that's a specific uh, and varied historical experience. But I think sometimes when we say that we're black, you know, we're not necessarily acknowledging that, you know, there are Ghanaian Americans and Panamanian Americans and Dominican Americans and, you know, there's all different types of ways to be black in the United States. So, um, and then there's all different types of black people everywhere. So I will say those two things. I also say that I'm working class um, mm. because I'm a first-generation college student. Um, I'm a first-generation graduate student. My father was in prison for a lot of my life. Um, so I think sometimes when people... It cracks me up because people meet me and they find out where I went to graduate school or that I'm a professor and they presume I come from means, um, which is often the case. So I guess I shouldn't be <laughs> surprised like most people, sadly, that's the reality because education in this country is rationed. But I do, but also for the other kids who grew up similarly to me, I try to make it clear that I am working class. Um, and then I also... Uh, what else do I say? I also say that I'm cisgendered, even though I have a complicated relationship to that term, I think, because mm. I, I know that I'm privileged to walk down the street and be read as a woman and be a biological woman, and I'm respectful to that, and I understand that. But I also feel, you know, being a professor and a filmmaker, I'm in and a child-free woman and a lesbian woman, that... Uh, I'm outside of a lot of expectations of what our society has for women. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it is, and that comes with its own challenges. Um, so I try to be respectful to the trans and gender non-conforming community, but also respectful to other women who are in my boat and, um, you know, being made to feel very visible and very out of place in our femininity in ways that we, nece- we shouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I identify with that as well Mm -hmm. I think that I walk this interesting line between (laughs) feeling very feminine in my energy but Mm -hmm. also feeling very masculine in my Mm -hmm. presentation and so Mm -hmm. what does that mean how does that how am I perceived some people have said to me like if I'm just walking down the street quickly like sir and Mm -hmm. I always think about how that makes me feel and how I react to it. Um, And so it's just, it's all just a really interesting dynamic. And I, I really like to talk to everyone I interview about terms because Mm -hmm. it's important and it's interesting to think about whether the terms we're claiming are based on how we're perceived by society Mm -hmm. or from within. 
So. Yeah, and I think that right. it's really tough to make that yeah. distinction because yeah. you're constantly, and I think this is something that we've learned from trans activists that's so helpful, is how much gender is policed. Mm. And, um, you know, I mean, I we uh, at the new school, uh, we now have gender-neutral bathrooms. And, um, you know, when I first started hearing about, and this is before the new school, when I first started hearing about, oh, you know, gender-neutral bathrooms and I was sort of like, you know, I don't, when I think about neutrality, my first instinct was as a black person to be like, I don't want to be neutral. You know, I don't want to be race neutral. I'm black. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't want to be gender neutral. I'm a woman. But then I had to really ask myself, like, what is at stake at like going into a bathroom that's designated for women or for men? Like, what's going to happen behind that door that was so fearful of? Like, it's the bathroom. And most of us grow up in a gender-neutral, in a a house with gender-neutral bathrooms, and so it's not like we don't know what that is, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think thinking about figuring out how to have that autonomous sense of self is such a challenge for so many of us because we are constantly policed by external factors you know even when it's clearly nobody's business you know <laughs> like it's clearly there was, there yeah was a terrible instant uh just i saw uh, unfortunately my partner likes the local news which i just feel like is you know watching a martin scorsese movie all day <laughs> it's just murder and mayhem it's nothing <laughs> constructive but anyway so there was, uh, a, a, sadly, a trans woman who's on the train, minding her business, as the cell phone video shows, and this woman, a cisgendered woman, walked halfway across the subway car to assault her. Oh, my God. And I was like, first of all, you walked so far. Like, you really had to make it your business to attack this woman. She was really not bothering anybody, including you. But you made it your business to sort of enforce some some line you thought needed to be enforced. And so I think it's just an example of how, you know, people can be, we can activate things in people by existing. Mm. And there's not really, you know, that's something we really need to work on changing. It's like you need to be able to respect what people are deciding to do with themselves away from you, mm-hmm. you know, on the other mm-hmm. side of the subway car. Mm-hmm. And learning about why that happens, why things are triggered in you based on those people existing. Yes, it's up to you. Right? And that's something that I feel like, you know, thinking about my own feelings about my own gender, and, you know, just being around trans activists and having dialogues with them is really helpful because it really got me thinking about, you know, how do I feel about, you know, as trans people have to think about how they think about how they feel about their femininity or masculinity like I need to ask myself those same questions you know how is it impacting me my expectations how people respond to me um and I found it to be a very empowering experience but also helped me to be very uh trans compassionate and Mm. trans supportive because I think part of the policing of trans people is the policing of all people yeah right you know it's like we really expect our expectations of all men are unrealistic, even if they're cisgendered men. You know, our expectations of all women are unrealistic, even if they're cisgendered women. You know, mm-hmm. so um, I think that's something that's important to talk about. Is there a book that is a must-read? One, one, <laughs> right now, in this right year. This year, fine. If it's not this year, is there a book that you're just like every? 
well, women if you want, or yes, person ev- of every color. every. Okay, well, let's say if this is for Women's History Month. <laughs> okay. Yes. This is for. Oh, I mean, I'm just gonna. I'm gonna say, I'm. I'm gonna totally be disobedient and give you a few <laughs> books because I can't. So I would say if you are just now, it's Women's History Month and Futures Month, and you're just now beginning to think about women. <laughs> I guess. I would say a starter is uh, Asada Shakur's autobiography. Mm. That is something that is extremely readable, extremely compelling, and awesome. So I would say that is like a starter book. Then if you have read that and you're like, oh, I need to just get more into this. I need to, I I can't, I must. Um, Then I would say maybe you should read Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. I know a lot of people are reading the the new Jim Crow, which is fantastic. Um, But Our Prisons Obsolete is like 150 pages. Mm -hmm. And it um, is by a prison, a former prisoner, Angela Davis. And and it really talks about uh, what, in in a concise way, what is wrong with a punishment-oriented criminal justice system mm-hmm. um, and why we need a restorative justice system. So it's making a, a different but not incompatible point to the new Jim Crow. So I really like our prisons obsolete. And then I would say, I mean, a lot of people, I would say then you would want to read this Bridge Called My Back, which is an anthology by Sherry, edited by Sherry Moraga and Gloria Anzaldua. And it is really one of the classic sort of third world women's feminist texts. And it has poetry and essays that really talks about intersectionality from the perspective of women who are uh, talking back to white second wave feminism, Mm -hmm. which um, is I think really important for young women especially to read now because so many of the critiques of white women's feminism as young people are calling it today are very much articulated in this book from 40 years ago and so um, it's very powerful stuff so I would say those three Asada Shakur's autobiography which is called Asada or Prisons Obsolete by Angel Davis and then this bridge called Met and yeah. what is next for you? <laughs> what is next for me? Well, next for me is hopefully after finishing this documentary and this book, which are like halfway done, um, uh, hopefully is getting uh, some television series on the air. So oh. uh, I am working with um, the author of a great book. Another book. Yeah, this book. <laughs> that was like social justice time. When social justice time is over. You want to go ahead and pick up a book called Love in uh, in the Land of Love and Drowning by Tiffany Unique. Land of Love and Drowning by Tiffany Unique. And she's my colleague here at the New School. She's from the Virgin Islands. And she's written this brilliant book based on her family's story uh, that follows two sisters as they go from riches to rags um, Mm. throughout the 20th century in the Virgin Islands. Mm. And it's astonishing and romantic and awesome, and we're working on a series based on that book. So, um, so 
there's that. And then I have a couple of other series ideas I'm working on with some fellow artists. So I'm really interested in television because I watched a ton of television when I was growing up. And I feel like um, there's so many things I was exposed to and I thought about um, not because I had parents who would take me to things or because, I mean, even though sometimes my mom would, but because I just, I was able to learn so much from great television. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it is, it can be a really great sort of popular education tool. I mean, I don't know if people watch How to Get Away with Murder, but How to Get Away with Murder is teaching us so much about the criminal justice system in between Viola Davis's crazy antics. <laughs> <laughs> and it's brilliant how they just sort of sneak yeah. this stuff in there. That is really helpful. So, um, so yeah, I'm interested in television right now. So hopefully that's what's next for me. I know it will be next for you. <laughs> I know it will. Well, thank you so much for thank joining you. me. Thank you for this. having this podcast. Oh, thank you. Um, I've learned a lot during this interview. And so I'm really thankful to you for taking the time to interview with me today and we'll be back next week with another episode in the meantime say what you need to say be yourself unapologetically and be awesome bye awesome (laughs) yes yes